MailChimp presents. Have you ever heard of the dreaded customer? You know, it's when marketers throw their customers into one big messy group, failing to define them by their different needs or habits. It can show up when coupon codes meant for new customers are sent out to everyone, even return customers who can't use the discount. Basically, it's a mess. If you're a marketer, Intuit MailChimp can help you personalize your marketing campaigns so that you meet customers' individual needs instead of missing them. Turn customers into customers by personalizing emails and SMS based on real-time behavior data. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. SMS is available as an add-on to U.S. paid plans only. Visit MailChimp.com for details. We all have that elder, you know, like an auntie, a friend, a parent, who drops wisdom on us and changes the course of our lives. This season, I'm talking to 15 incredible people about important moments they went through and how the elders in their lives got them through it. I'm your host, Jenny Yang, and this is Going Through It. This week, Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. I think that the comment that my mom made to me was fundamentally about preserving our humanity. And it means that people have a right to feel human the whole time. Not just that we fight for the right to feel human later, but we feel human as we fight for the right to feel human. If you're like me, the political unrest these past few years has been so stressful. Like, maybe you've thought, am I doing enough through my work and my day-to-day life? to be on the right side of history? Sometimes what we do for a living feels like it defines us. So when these big, difficult moments arrive, it's easy to feel like we're not doing our part. And as someone who used to work in the labor movement who now works as a comedian, I get it, I really do. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein about identifying your mission and facing that feeling head on. Chanda is a theoretical physicist and feminist theorist, which basically means she is not only thinking about big ideas like dark matter and space, but she's also committed to thinking about how to address problems here on Earth, like racism, sexism, and colonialism. You know, the easy stuff. This is why Chanda is a singular voice. In her book, The Disordered Cosmos, she writes about everything from melanin to particle physics to Star Trek. And she writes about it all in a way that's so easy to understand. I mean, I feel smarter just having the book in my house. During our chat, I learned that Chanda had her struggles too. Moments where she questioned her mission. Turns out, being one of a few Black women in the field of physics? Not so easy. And in one especially challenging moment, Chanda did something so many of us do in a crisis. She called her mom. But Chanda's mom is not just any mom. Before Chanda and I met on Twitter, I used to listen to her mom's syndicated radio show, Sojourner Truth, on KPFK. Political lefties and anyone familiar with Los Angeles movement politics know 
She is a legend. You know what? I'm actually going to let Chanda take it from here. My mom, Margaret Prescott, is the co-founder of International Black Women for Wages for Housework. And she was also the founder of the Black Coalition Fighting Back Serial Murders. Where there's injustice, Margaret Prescott will be found. Like, she has that kind of, like, superhero nose for things. Margaret Prescott is always the best-dressed person at every single protest that she's at. End of conversation. Would bet money on it. I think in a, in a different life, in a different world where my mom didn't feel like she had to give her life to the movement, she would have, I don't know, been the head of fashion at Scarlet Magazine. Yes! <laughs> the bold type, you mean? I've been watching the bold type. <laughs> but really, she is an avid reader of Vogue. So she will often put together patterns and clothing that you're going to see in Vogue next year. But you're looking at it and you're like, what are you doing that's weird? Excuse me, Margaret Prescott. (laughs) It's hard to summarize her in one non-run-on sentence. My mom lives in Los Angeles, and I am pretty much as far from Los Angeles as you can get without landing in the Atlantic Ocean. I'm in New Hampshire. And so we usually keep in touch with each other by text message several times a week sometimes exchanging gossip. In some ways, like I'm a a Twitter curator. And then it's always like, should I I be sending my mom stuff from Twitter? Because also sometimes she replies to my tweets and she like signs them, love mom, using her radio show Twitter account. (laughs) Or Chanda's mom, if she's replying to other people. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, that's so cute. (laughs) And as someone who's been listening to your mom on the radio for years, it's so cool to me that you can just call up Margaret Prescott for advice. Like, what is some of the advice she's given you? About four or five years ago, yet another Black person had been killed by the police. And people were out in the streets fighting for our lives. And it's interesting to me that I don't remember the exact year because we have now had so many summers and then falls and then winters and then springs where these stories have happened that it really could be pegged to any moment in the last almost 10 years of the visible movement against these murders. I was very focused on trying to get a faculty position in physics. And so I was feeling like I had to really, you know, I could I could signal boost things on social media, but I couldn't spend a lot of time out in the streets the way that other people were. And there was this kind of feeling for me like, oh, Maybe I'm going to look back and say I should have been out in the streets saving people's lives and like the way that my mom is and and frankly the way that my dad is. Like my entire family, everybody's a political activist. And so I called my mom to say like, do you think that I've fucked up (laughs) basically? And my mom started by telling me that Black Lives Matter means your life matters too, sweetie. That was, I think, one of the first times that she said something like that to me. And that means that my dreams matter and my aspirations matter. I think that that's what she was communicating to me. And then she also said that people need to know that the universe is bigger than the bad things that are happening to them. Mm. And when I started working on my book, it was something that I thought about, which was the world has to be bigger than just the fight. Yeah. And what was it about this particular moment that brought out these feelings for you? 
I was watching people fight for our lives in the streets, and I was feeling very aware that actually, like, having people and, like, numbers in the streets really made a difference. And also aware of a few different things, which was that I was in a car accident. I was hit by a car while I was biking when I was in college. And because of that, I have chronic pain issues. And as I've gotten older, it's gotten harder for me to participate in protests the way that I did when I was younger. And so aware of how my shifting disability was shifting my ability to participate in that process. And also how that disability and other factors were affecting um, my ability to get my work done, my research as a theoretical physicist. And at that point, I was a postdoctoral fellow. So for people who are not academics, this means I already had my PhD. It's kind of like the academic equivalent of being a medical resident. So you have your degree, but you're not like certified yet. But I didn't have a faculty position, which meant I was precarious. My position in academia was not guaranteed. There was a lot of pressure on me to like keep my head down and focus. And I was trying to figure out what it said about me if I did do a little bit of that. If I wasn't out in the streets, if I was signal boosting on social media to my growing following, but also I was taking the time to do things that advanced my own personal career and and success. I think it's worth saying that in the last like year and a half of my search for a faculty position that I became increasingly depressed. And um, the way that this manifested was like me sitting down on the floor in the middle of the day and just crying. <laughs> and my, my spouse having to like pick me up and be like, okay, I'm just going to put you in front of the TV right now because you're not going to do anything else. And at the same time, As a a visible Black woman in physics, I had people who were coming to me expecting me to troubleshoot problems that they were having in academia, Um, including actually expecting me to solve problems with programs that I, I didn't have the power to solve. You can't solve racism? In academia, just by a phone call? I can't solve racism. There were also like a lot of pressures on me to show up in different ways. And none of them involved feeling like I had a right to show up for myself. (laughs) That was part of what was going on. You know, I will say that my mom was a bad mentor in that I never watched her step back and say, this is a moment where I need to be thinking about what do do I need? Mm. Everything you've said about where you were, I mean, thank you for sharing those details, by the way, because it's not easy to admit vulnerability. And personally, as as a recovering overachiever who was like trying to be a straight-A girl and impress my immigrant parents, when you said that your mom said to you, Black lives matter, and that means your life matters too, ugh, like it really moved me. And, mm. and, it, and, and it makes me tear up because like, I feel like if you're a person from a marginalized community, sometimes you might feel like additional pressure or weight or responsibility to say, like, fight for racial or gender justice in whatever field you were in. And especially in a field like physics that, like, people don't always consider to be intersecting with these issues, even though you explain why that's obviously wrong in your book. But, like, like apparently you're, like, what, the, the 54th? 
black woman to get a PhD in physics in the U.S. ever? Yeah, I would say there's a little hand-waving there because it depends on like what you mean, like black American and Department of Physics, Department of Astronomy. But yeah, if we're just talking about black American women from departments of physics, I'm probably somewhere in the 50s. Oh my God. No wonder you felt all this pressure. <laughs> I, I want to contextualize about what number of black American woman PhD in physics I am. Because people might say, okay, but like how many PhDs in physics even are there? In the United States, about 2,000 PhDs in physics are granted every single year. Every year. So this year, we're crossing the 100 line for Black women with PhDs in physics and related fields. So not even necessarily from departments of physics. I'm not sure we've hit 100 there. Um, in all of U.S. history. And so, you know, the first Black American woman to earn a PhD in physics was in the early 70s. So literally, like, right before I was born. Basically, it's all happened in my lifetime. Yeah. It's the weight of history. But, you know, um, no shut up and do your calculations. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, there are so many things that are very broken about diversity and inclusion in STEM. So first of all, there's this narrative that Black girls, Black people are not interested in science. And the data doesn't bear that out. That's not the issue. The issue is how we get treated, whether RAM is made for our interest in science and, and, and the way that that might look different from, you know, a rich white kid from Pasadena. We spend all of this time now proselytizing about the importance of um, becoming a scientist and becoming a mathematician and following your passion. And then it's like impossible for any of us to actually have the experience of just following our passion. You're doing double shifts when it comes to also becoming a change agent to make the culture that you're in more amenable to people like you possibly, right? Or at least not messing up. <laughs> the opportunity to keep and retain people like you. <laughs> yes. And I'm I'm kind of in two minds about this because on the one hand, I'm actually, I'm sitting in my home office and on the wall, I have a wood carving. The function of freedom is to free someone else, Toni Morrison. I am in a position to do some of that change making. And I have had opportunities and been given in some ways undue power I went to Harvard, and that means that people listen to me in a different way. I have a PhD. It gives me discursive power um, in a way that other people who I think are just as intellectually engaged as me but didn't have those same opportunities don't have power. So I'm aware of that, and I'm aware of the, the importance of that. And then I'm also aware of the fact that, like, you know, if white physicists around me did their part, that I would have to do less. And so it's not about saying I shouldn't have to do anything. Wait a minute. Are you saying if the rest of you did some of this work, I wouldn't be on the floor crying and depressed, yes. wondering if I'm letting down the racial justice movement? <laughs> yes, exactly. No, I mean, I think that that's exactly it. Because sometimes what people hear is I shouldn't have to do anything. Yeah. And the point is, is that we should all have to do something. But some of us are, are basically feeling forced to do more and to carry an, an undue burden. And there are ways in which, you know, there are certain things that, that can't be shifted to someone else. Like right now, when a Black student needs to talk to a Black mentor, that's something that just has to, like, Black mentors have to be the ones who do that work. Yeah. But then there also has to be a recognition of, well, then you can't expect that Black mentor to also be doing all of the same service work that 
um, their white colleagues are doing when we know that they are also doing this additional work. Totally. I mean, it's just all so much added labor. Um, I want to go back to your mom a bit. You said that you two text a lot, but I wonder, when do you decide you need to call her? When I think I'm kind of stuck, maybe morally, and I trust my mom's moral compass maybe more than anybody else's on the planet. Even when my mom and I disagree, I trust that the place that she is coming from is one of deep consideration for the well-being of humankind. I, I feel like I know a lot of people that I trust. Like I, I trust my husband like that, but there's like just a level of I know that my mom would like literally lay her life down if if she felt that that was what was required. And and unfortunately, actually, I've many times watched her over the years kind of run herself down physically. And in some sense, that's what she's been doing is laying her life down over many decades, right? Um, but I trust her moral compass. And so when I think I need a check on what direction to go in, my mom is absolutely the person um, that I trust the most with that conversation. I, I wish I heard this advice when I left the labor movement to pursue comedy because like a part of me felt like I was betraying my political beliefs. You know, like it might have been a little bit of a balm for the like internal pain and conflict that I felt. This advice is just so powerful. Like truly, I wish, I just wish I heard that sooner. I think as women of color and more broadly, people from marginalized backgrounds are also always having this fantasy that the thing that feels oppressive, the job that feels oppressive, the work environment that feels oppressive, we can just walk away from it and find one that isn't. So I totally hear what you're saying about this. But then I know, having grown up in Los Angeles, you're also walking into this like very fucked up entertainment industry, right? <laughs> pick your poison, Chanda, pick your poison. <laughs> but that's exactly what it is. And I think that this is like the tough conversation that we have to have with ourselves is that we're always picking our poison. And I think that that's also, in some ways, like a piece of the conversation that my mom and I were having, which was if... Things are going to feel messed up for you, and they're going to feel messed up for you wherever you go. <laughs> you should feel like there is meaning and significance if you can make it and, and what you're doing with your time. And sometimes that might be like, look, I'm just doing this job so that I can pay the bills. That's significant meaning. I think that sometimes we talk about it like unless you're doing creative class work, that your your work doesn't have um, significance and meaning to it. So I'm not talking about like, oh, you have to have some um, glamorous career or something, yeah. but that you really have to think about what is my purpose and why I show up to my life in, in the ways that I do. And that was what I was asking my mom about was what is my purpose here? Why am I even having this fight about physics? Yeah. I think that the comment that my mom made to me, it was fundamentally about preserving our humanity. And it means that people have a right to feel human the whole time. Not just that we fight for the right to feel human later, but we feel human as we fight for the right to feel human. And, you know, it's recursive. In some sense, the thing that we are struggling for, we are also called to be that as we are struggling for our right to be that. And that really speaks to my experience as, as a Black woman in physics, which is that sometimes I have to be the thing that I want to see 
in the pipeline ahead of me. Like I am my own mentor in some ways. I am the the visibility that I, I would like to have. So I really think that this is about preserving our humanity through the whole struggle. Mm. Can we just put that on a neon sign, like a billboard skywriting? I don't know. Because if you're a do-gooder like me, you've had to figure out, how do I keep my own sanity and humanity while trying to make the world a better place? When I decided to leave labor organizing to pursue comedy full-time, I had this huge identity crisis. Ever since college, I had dedicated my life to activism. This was my calling, and I gave everything to it. I barely had a life outside of work. Hobbies? Okay. What are hobbies? So when I made the move to comedy, some of my activist friends even accused me of abandoning, quote, the cause. Like, I was already feeling so guilty about leaving my job that hearing these criticisms just poured salt in the wound. But, like, I couldn't deny my deepest personal dreams of living a creative life any longer. I was burnt out, and I didn't see a happy future in organizing work, so I tried stand-up, and and I loved it. Sometimes, you know, the weight of an important cause can make it feel like our personal lives or dreams don't matter much. But you're no good to that cause if you're burnt out or forget your passions. Even if you're not on the visible front lines of a movement, you can affect change from right where you are. Chanda figured out how she could kick ass as a physicist and fight for greater equity and justice as an accomplished academic. Fighting against injustices is important, but we also need to create the good stuff. Art, beauty, and joy. And from the way I see it, those things go hand in hand. There's this classic mantra from the women's suffrage movement that I think about a lot, that we're fighting for bread and roses. And it basically means that, yes, like we're fighting for our bread, which is what we need to survive, but we also deserve roses along the way. Creativity, inspiration, culture. We need to live our humanity while we fight for our humanity. We deserve bread and roses. Through It is an original podcast created in partnership with MailChimp and Pineapple Street Studios. Executive producers for Going Through It are Jayanne Berry, Jenna Weiss-Berman, and Max Linsky. Our managing producer is Agarenish Ashagre. This season is produced by the all-star team of Sophia Steiner-Evoy, Emerald O'Brien, and Yinka Rickford-Anguin. And we're edited by the irreplaceable Aaron Edwards. We're engineered to perfection or very close to it by Davey Sumner. Our theme music was produced by Raj Makija. Dawood Anthony also produced original music for this season with additional tunes from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Extra special thanks to Himia Freeman for his support on this production. And of course, the biggest thanks to my own elders for everything and for being the inspiration behind the show. Mom, Dad, Margaret Cho, Tracy Kato Kiriyama, Keiko Agena, Tim Sams, Gina Lu Gong, Quan Fung, Michelle Ko, and so many more. And thanks in general to my loud ass partner, Corey Higgs, for staying quiet in the house for me. And thank you for listening.